Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio with Don and Jaspreet on Greenwashed. Remember to give your feedback, uh, email inbox at realitycheck.radio or text 2057. Your feedback's most welcome. Now, I've come up with this uh, line from Will Durant. He said, civilization occurs with geological with geological consent, subject to change without notice. I think we've got the ultimate uh, guest on here today, Dr. Uh, Professor Ian Plymer from Adelaide. Welcome, Ian. Um, Thank welcome you for having Reality me. Check, Reality Check Radio. Um, we think this is a coup, a scoop. So uh, you know, I'll let Jasper uh, give a bit more about your credentials and then you well, can let, 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 me just, let me just comment on that uh, Durant quote. I've often thought that the only way the Wallabies are going to win a game against the All Blacks is for geology to take place, to have a massive <laughs> super volcano in New Zealand because we're not going to win it any other way. <laughs> well... I'm not so sure. Things are getting more even each year. Um, um, I'm a bit more worried that we get wine as good as Australians, Clear Valley or Barossa or something. We're getting oh, close, look, I think. I'm a Pinot Noir drinker, and I, I drink your Otago Pinot Noirs all the time. I won't touch the Australian stuff. Your Pinot Noir is a little bit softer than the stuff from the Yarra Valley or from where I am in South Australia, where we grow some good wines, or the Tasmanian uh, Pinot Noir. So, um New Zealand wines are very popular in Australia. Oh, very good. And uh, I can vouch for that. Uh, Central Otago Pinot's just as good as it gets. Anyway, no. Jess Preet. We'll I can, I can also I can also vouch for the Central Otago wines, though I'm more a South drinker. And with that opening from Ian, I like the way this is going already. But <laughs> I'll just get the formal introductions uh, in. Professor Ian Plymer is probably Australia's best-known geologist. He is Emeritus Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Melbourne, where he was Professor and Head of Earth Sciences from 1991 to 2005. Prior to that, Ian was at the University of Newcastle as Professor and Head of Geology. He was also Professor of Mining Geology at the University of Adelaide from 2006 to 2012 on the staff of University of New England, the University of New South Wales, Macquarie University. He's published more than 120 scientific papers on geology and was one of the trinity of editors for the five-volume Encyclopedia of Geology. I will leave it at that, Ian, and let you do the honors because I could go on and on here. Thank you so much for having us, uh, joining us today. Well, it's an absolute pleasure uh, because I didn't say pressure, did I? I said pleasure, I think, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> I've always been interested in the way this planet works and I can look at the, the countryside, read the land, I can look at a tile in a bathroom and it tells a story. And as humans, we are hardwired to tell stories and the story of this planet is absolutely fantastic. And what children are being told in schools about how there's one trace gas that drives a major planetary process and we're all doomed, this, this gas is actually plant food. This gas is the reason we can live. And these children are missing out on the absolute excitement of science. And in my field, I need to talk to physicists 
I need to talk to astronomers. I need to talk to chemists. I need to talk to biologists to put together the complete story and the history of the planet. And there's some wonderful questions you can ask. You could ask a question like, well, when did it first rain on planet Earth? And that's not a question about rain. That actually, if you follow it through to the logical conclusion, is a question about the evolution of life. You can ask questions about extinctions. Yes, we, we've had major mass extinctions on planet Earth, but we've had uh, over 20 minor mass extinctions, and extinction is with us all the time. We're getting species turn over all the time and come and go. We're getting an increase in species, even though we're getting species go extinct. So there are some wonderful problems that are intellectual problems, but they're also practical problems. Where do we find oil? How do we find it? Oil formed in one place and moves to another. Um, how can we predict what's happened and where it's gone? So I find this complete understanding of the planet is really quite exhilarating. And for 250 years, geologists have been writing about climate change. All the textbooks are full of material about climate change. And then fairly recently, we have these Johnny-come-latelys come along and tell us that there is a, a discipline called climate change and we've all got to be worried about climate change. We've had these battles in geology 250 years ago where the surface deposits on Europe and Ireland and England were great boulders and one of the theories was that this was from a war between trolls chucking boulders at each other. Another was that it was <laughs> a remnant from the Noah's Great Flood. Another was that this was left behind by retreating ice. And the, these were strong arguments going on in the 1700s. And it was then that geologists realised that, wait a minute, Europe must have been covered in ice. And French geologists working in the Paris Basin saw fossils of tropical plants and tropical animals and came to the conclusion, hang on a tick, it must have been tropical here once. And, of course, the great discovery was finding fossil alligators in the Arctic. So geologists yeah. have known for a long while that climates change, and they change for many, many reasons. Uh, they can change because we've got a bad address. A continent might drift across a pole. It can change because... We have um, a pulling apart of a continent or stitching back together of continents, and this changes the way heat is distributed around the Earth on ocean currents. Uh, climates can very easily change if, if we have a change in solar activity, if we have a change in the orbital activity, if we have uh, cosmic radiation hitting us from some supernova eruption way out there. We've known this for more than 100 years. We've known that the Earth orbit changes and gets us closer or further to the sun. And closer, we're warmer, further away, we're cooler. And we've known this for over 100 years, yet all of a sudden we get told that the whole reason for climate change is due to humans pumping out traces of plant food into the atmosphere. So the ultimate climate scientists are the geologists. The ultimate understanding of the planet comes from geology, which integrates all the sciences. So this is why I'm fascinated in the way the planet works. And it's dynamic. And you know this in New Zealand. You've got earthquakes, you've got volcanoes, you've got sea levels going up and down, you've got land levels going up and down. This is quite normal in the history of the planet. And 
geologists have always thought that the planet was dynamic, whereas we had creationists who say, oh, yes, the planet was static until we humans came along. We have the climate scientists or the really activists telling us that the planet is, is static until we started to change the climate. And this is a major planetary process. Traces of a trace gas going to the atmosphere cannot change a major planetary process. Oh, and, but sorry to interrupt, but legislation can, surely. Legislation doesn't <laughs> control how the Earth's <laughs> orbit works or how much energy comes from the sun. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the legislators um, are fairly ignorant people, um, especially the lawyers in Parliament. Uh, they do not know how to use evidence, uh, and these are lawyers. And the legislators and the bureaucracy are actually political activists. They have no knowledge at all about how the planet works. They don't care if they put a farmer out of work. They don't care if they destroy a factory by legislating for certain procedures. So um, in many ways, if we had government get out of the way, we'd be in a much better position. Here, here to that. Um, interestingly, uh, you, you talk about the evolution of stuff. Um, was CO2 even around at the start of 4.6 billion years ago, do you think? was Did it exist? Oh, that is a very profound question, and it requires a long answer. This oh. planet has been degassing ever since it formed on that Thursday, 4,567 million years ago. <laughs> and it's been degassing um, water vapour and carbon dioxide and other minor gases. Its first atmosphere was rich in ammonia, was rich in methane, rich in carbon monoxide, which is quite poisonous. Um, it was a reducing atmosphere, and that was around for about a 1,000 million years. And in that atmosphere, which was hot and chemically very different from today's atmosphere, we actually had life appear. And I go back to a statement I made earlier about when did it first rain. As soon as we see evidence of old gravels and old sands in Western Greenland, we can conclude that there must have been running water and therefore we must have had rain. And if you dissolve up those rocks and uh, look at the residue that's left behind. There's about a teaspoon of grey muck as the residue. And you don't see any fossils. But when you look at this chemically, it's got the chemical fingerprint of life. And it's got the chemical fingerprint of carbon compounds that don't form in outer space but are associated with life. So this tells us that life can exist in very, very hostile conditions. And we know that this primitive bacterial life can live in hot conditions, cold conditions, can live in the ice, can live in clouds, can live in acid conditions, alkaline conditions, the bottom of the sea and the top of the atmosphere. So very early life, we had a, a pretty hostile atmosphere and it started to change. As carbon dioxide kept being released from the earth, and you release it mainly when you pull apart parts of the surface of the Earth. And our second atmosphere in the Earth was a carbon dioxide-rich atmosphere. It had up to 20% carbon dioxide, whereas the current atmospheric carbon dioxide content is 0.04%. We had up to 20% carbon dioxide. And yet, during that period of time, we had ice ages. We had one, two, three, four ice ages 
during that period of time when we had a very, very high carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere. So the past is telling us that carbon dioxide is not driving global warming. And then we had a remarkable event. We had a couple of goes trying to start this event of the appearance of multicellular life. We had multicellular life appear but just after a big glaciation event called the um, Maranoan, uh, sorry, the Sturgeon, and then after that, we had shallow marine life appear as reefs. And then we had another ice age, and this was a Maranoan, and that wiped out that life. Sea levels dropped about 600 metres. And we had another go at forming multicellular life, and that was the Ediacara. And they appeared... 583 million years ago, again on a Thursday, it's quite incredible. And that multicellular life was was soft shell. It didn't have any um, skeletons. They were chordates. Some of them were chordates. Some of them were your primitive ancestors. But that life started to suck carbon dioxide out of the water, which had come from the atmosphere, and to build shells and to build limestone reefs and to build skeletons. And at that period of time, we started to sequester carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere to give us our third atmosphere, which is an oxygen-rich atmosphere. And we've been pulling carbon dioxide out of our atmosphere now for over 500 million years. We now are at a stage in the atmosphere where we are dangerously low. If we halve the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, that would kill off all plant life. Now, of course, the good news about that is that the vegans would go first, but the meat eaters would follow very <laughs> soon after because uh, uh, meat eaters eat plants. So um, if we have another three glaciations and we're just coming out of an interglacial into another glaciation, another three of those, and we'll have the carbon dioxide content in the atmosphere so low that this will be dangerous for all life on Earth. And I argue very strongly that we picked on the wrong gas uh, the main greenhouse gas is water vapour. Um, secondly, we picked on the food of life as the gas we want to destroy and sequester and lock away. We should be concerned that we have such a low carbon dioxide content because it does the planet good. And we've seen that in the last 40 years. We had a very slight increase in atmospheric carbon dioxide. We've seen a greening of the deserts. We've had better crop yields. That's partly due to the aerial fertilisation of carbon dioxide, but it's partly due to GM crops. It's partly due to better fertilisers and it's partly due to better farming practices. So the third atmosphere has had a decrease in carbon dioxide and it's been decreasing enormously, and it's an oxygen-rich atmosphere. So like life, like the rocks, like the planet, the atmosphere also evolves. And that evolution very much drives the evolution of life and the evolution of oceans. And so you just can't pick on one thing, the gas carbon dioxide, and say, oh, it's affecting the whole planet. All these cycles are working together and they're working hand in hand and you have to look at the complete picture. And this is why geology is so wonderful because to calculate what these past atmospheres did, you have to get outside and if you want to measure how much carbon dioxide was in a past atmosphere, you've got to walk a lot of miles, measure how much dolomite you walk over, and dolomite's a solid rock, but it's got 48% carbon dioxide in that rock. You measure it, you assume it, say, goes down to 10 kilometres depth, you can then calculate the volume 
of carbon dioxide that went into make, make that rock and that came from the atmosphere. And then you go to the laboratory and you make carbon dioxide um, from dolomite. You then go to the laboratory and you make dolomite. And so from the experiments and from measurements out in the bush, you can work out how much carbon dioxide was once in the atmosphere. So I, I find this integration of science is very, very interesting, where most of your climate activists or climate scientists are just mathematicians. They have no knowledge of integrated interdisciplinary science and they have no knowledge of what's happening planetary-wise in the past which leads into the present. And we can only start understand the present if we understand the past. So I, I would argue that, uh, well, posit now that that's case over, case closed, job's done, all the climate activists and everyone can go home and all the legislators can close their books and uh, retire and we just move on. But that's not what we're going to be allowed to do. Well, well to, to add to that, we then should stop funding people to do climate science research. They've done their job. Thank you very much. You've ruined the planet. Um, go away. But these people are imminently unemployable. These people, if they couldn't be in some institution frightening us witless um, about something that's going to happen in hundreds of years' time, they would have no job. That's mm, a common theme, and, and some parts of our show, actually, uh, based on my background, that's definitely the case that I put up. Interestingly, is it ever possible, do you think, to isolate human-enhanced uh, CO2 in the atmosphere from uh the rest. What would have been there naturally, yeah. Is well, that again is a very, very good question. I argue that no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. I've asked scientists for it, they've obfuscated. I've asked journalists for the information and they've abused me. I've asked activists for the information and they've abused me, but I still have not got half a dozen credible scientific papers that show me that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Now, if you could, if you could show that, you'd also have to show that the natural emissions of carbon dioxide don't drive global warming, and that's only 97% of the total. And you would have to show um, that all the emissions from degassing of the oceans, uh, from volcanoes, submarine volcanoes and basalt volcanoes and from exhalation from mammals, you would have to show that that um, has no effect. Now, the way in which these calculations are done, and they're very complicated calculations, there's not an actual measurement that's done. It's a deduction mm. based on the amount of carbon, uh, a lighter carbon and a slightly heavier carbon, and with one form of carbon preferentially used by trees and another form um, that isn't. And so you measure that proportion in the atmosphere. But what it doesn't tell us is that there are natural emissions of biological carbon from the lungs of the planet. Uh, there are natural emissions of carbon dioxide and methane that come out of the tundra. There are natural emissions that come out of natural forest fires and tundra fires. We also hear about the lungs of the earth being the rainforest of Brazil. Well, that's just absolute bullshit. Um, the oxygen that's released out of the rainforests in Brazil, most of that is used by the rainforest bacteria to chew up leaves and twigs and wood 
um, in the decomposition of material on the floor of the forest. The lungs of the earth are the phytoplankton, the floating algal material in the oceans. That's the lungs of the earth. But, of course, we never consider that as things. So all of those change the proportion of the light and the heavy carbon in carbon dioxide. And I very strongly question the measurements that are made, how they're made, and, um, of course, what is ignored. And in science, if someone measures something, you have to ask some fundamental questions. Who measured it? What was the equipment that was used to measure it? What is the order of accuracy? What results were rejected? What res results were accepted? Are there any other possible measurements that might have a bearing on this? And when you ask all of those questions, these measurements of, of light and heavy carbon dioxide in the atmosphere uh, don't pass those simple scientific tests. So no. I'm very sceptical that we can actually find a fingerprint of human carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Uh, completely. And, you know, as, as you were speaking, Ian, and for our listeners, we are speaking to Ian Plymer, Australian geologist. I of trying to isolate. I'm a dairy farmer and also a counsellor here in Southland, not far from Dawn. And my daughter the other day, she's eight, she brought the globe to me. And, you know, I've been trying to get her to memorize the different oceans. So she knows the continents. These are the oceans. And she said, why do I need to memorize these names? I said, well, which where, where are you going? She says, it's all the same water. You're just calling it different names in different places, isn't it? <laughs> I had I had never thought of it that way. But she actually made me think like this because, you know, I'm 44, I'm showing my age, and you were taught to learn the continents and oceans. But I'll now go to your book, Ian Greenwood. Can I just, com just, can I just comment on that? Because that, that mm -hmm. was a fascinating question from a child. Um, these oceans are connected, and at times the connections are greater um, than um, at other times. About uh, two and a half million years ago, we had North America and South America join at Panama. And so we stopped the circulation of water from the Pacific into the Atlantic. As a result of that, we stopped the transfer of heat from one ocean to the other. As a result of that, mm. we had a cooling event. And coincidentally, we had a cosmic eruption, a supernova eruption that bombarded us with cosmic rays, which form more clouds, so it gets cooler, we get more precipitation, and that was when we started to get ice form on Greenland. So um, by stopping the oceans connect, we actually changed climate. Go back a bit further. South America was once joined to Antarctica. And we were nice and warm and jolly, and we had uh, a lot of connection of warm tropical waters coming north and coming south and keeping the Arctic and the Antarctic warm. And when South America started to pull away from Antarctica, we set up a circumpolar current around Antarctica. The warm water couldn't get there. It started to freeze. That was 34 million years ago. And over the last 34 million years, we've had ice that has expanded. That's a glaciation. And ice that's contracted, and that's an interglacial. We are actually in an ice age. And until we can move Antarctica off the South Pole, we will stay in that ice age. We could change things very easily. For example, if in the Bering Strait we had the land rise a little bit, and it is rising, 
and we mm -hmm. closed off water going from the North Pacific into the Arctic, we would freeze the Arctic very quickly because that North Pacific water is bringing heat into the Arctic. So the oceans drive the climate. Water holds more heat than air. And you can do the experiment of home. Mm. Run a bath and the bathroom gets quite hot. Do the opposite. Have a, a bath of cold water and have a radiator in there. The water doesn't warm up. Water is a, has a high heat capacity. And so you can move heat around the earth in water and that changes your climate. So your daughter was very, very profound in her comments, which was um, really quite interesting that she's asking those sort of questions. Yeah, why, why should she learn? But I'll, I'll come to your book now, Ian, Green Murder. And I will hark back to uh, comments from politicians in uh, my motherland, India. And we had our power minister in India speak late last year. And he said that there is no way that we are going to reduce the construction of power plants because he said, I cannot, and I cannot compromise India's, it is they're hitting three big states, which are also a manufacturing hubs. And he says, we simply can't afford that. Yet, when I come out here, you know, not just New Zealand, I look at any Western country, we have politicians hell-bent upon destroying their own economies. And I mean, New Zealand is no different. We were quoted a figure recently by an eminent guest who came here saying that there's figures being thrown around of something like 500 billion in New Zealand to electrify everything, keeping in mind our GDP is just over 350 billion. And no one, no one seems to blink an eyelid. What's going on here? How hard is it to do simple maths? Oh, God, this is a, this, that's an interesting and difficult question. Uh, I spent a lot of my time working in the third world, in Africa and uh, South America, and they, they're not having conniptions about global warming. They're not shutting down their power systems. I do a lot of work in Asia, and the same thing, and you quoted India, which is now the biggest um, country in the world. Now, India's got some very, very good coal deposits, but they're inland, mm. and they need the railway systems to take them to the coast where all the manufacturing is. So... They are um, exploiting Australian coals. It's easier to get a coal from Australia to the coast of India than mm -hmm. it is from a coal inland in India to the coast of India. Now, India is not stupid, nor is China. They know that the Western world, especially the Anglosphere, had a great industrial revolution. It mm -hmm. was driven by coal. That industrial revolution brought people out of poverty that Industrial Revolution gave us the middle class. That Industrial Revolution stopped poverty. That Industrial Revolution made medicine more freely available. That Industrial Revolution, driven by coal, made travel easy. And so the evolving world, countries in South America, India, China, Southeast Asia, they are not going to stop their countries growing to becoming as comfortable as Western countries. Now, in the West, we are extraordinarily wealthy. People don't realise it, but you, you travel a bit to some of the absolute cesspits of the world, and we are so incredibly wealthy. And what I think has been happening is that over the last 20 years, we have been attacking every major institution. We've been attacking politics, the universities, the schools and the churches, but...
the Western countries have got residual Christianity. And with that residual, residual Christianity, you have guilt. Uh, you pay penance. Uh, you can buy your way out of hell. Uh, and that's what's happening. People, I think, are feeling guilty that per capita they use a lot more energy. They're feeling guilty that they're wealthy. And the only thing you can do when you're wealthy, if you're not careful, is to blow that money. And so they are blowing money, um, beating their chest and trying to get to the impossible dream of net zero. That destroys an economy. They um, pay their indulgences. They have their high priests. They have their holy book, which no one ever reads. Um, <laughs> and so I think this is a characteristic of the Christian Western world, especially the Anglosphere. So who are the um, the high priests? Who are the, the uh, perpetrators of this uh, new virtuous uh, uh, behaviour? Oh, well, when you look around the world at those who've made a mozza out of this, it's people like Al Gore or Klaus Schwab. Um, Al, Al Gore has made billions out of, out of frightening people witless. And you have to remember how his family um, got their wealth. And it was for having smelters um, for the lead zinc deposits, um, zinc smelters in Mississippi, Kentucky, and, and these areas of the tri-state where lead and zinc has been mined. So actually, they actually made their money out of, out of putting crap into the atmosphere. And now they're going around um, in their private jets, of course, um, in and living in their waterfront houses, telling us that we should have a sackcloth and ashes. Now, it just doesn't wash. If you are very serious about net zero, I will listen to you and I will come to the entrance of your cave after five consecutive days when it snowed, you haven't been able to hunt and gather anything and you can tell me about the benefits of net zero. Well, I've got this um, comment to that, that NZ is net zero. That's what it stands for, NZ. So that's New Zealand. <laughs> and that also is New Zimbabwe. So we're NZ to the power of three if we if we go down this route. But that's my private opinion, of course. Well, uh, there might be some good news there. You need someone to do the sums. I did the sums in Australia. Uh, did the sums of how much carbon dioxide is released from factories, from our mines, from our smelters, from our farms. and then I looked at how much we absorb in our grasslands, in our crops, in our forests, in our rangelands, and in the continental shelf area where it's, um, carbon dioxide dissolved in the water. And in Australia, we emit one-tenth of what we absorb. So we are already at net zero. And I suspect that New Zealand, with its low population and a pretty large continental shelf, it would have a similar sort of figure. I think so too. Uh, of course, we've got this dumb nonsense uh, called GWP, Global Warming Potential for Methane and Nitrous Oxide, which uh, they say makes up 50% of our inventory. Now, even by talking like this, I'm sort of falling into the uh, pit that says that uh, this is all relevant. But that's where we are today in uh, 50%, 48, 50% of New Zealand's inventory is from agricultural emissions from methane, nitrous oxide and the like. And so uh, it's convenient to whip uh, about 60,000 businesses in New Zealand into line. 
Uh, it's, it's convenient to import coal from Indonesia in this country instead of um, really digging it out ourselves because we've got plenty. Uh, and it's convenient for the politicians to play all these cards against us. So when well, I see let, the let me of- just make a couple of comments on that. Um, the main greenhouse gas in the atmosphere is water vapour. About 90% of the temperature effects in the atmosphere are due to water vapour. Um, the second major greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide and way down the list of methane and nitrogen uh, compounds, etc. The second thing is that New Zealand coals, especially West Coast, South Island coals, are some of the cleanest coals in the world. They are fabulous quality coals. By contrast, the Indonesian coal that you're bringing in is high ash and high sulphur. That's not doing the environment any good at all. Burn your own coals. They're great coals. They're highly desired around the world. And the third thing is you can do the mass balance calculations. And if you're a dairy farmer or a, um, a beef farmer, do the sums. Grass uses a certain amount of carbon dioxide to grow. And the cattle will eat that grass. And some of that will be converted into carbon compounds, which ends up as dung, so that um, stays in the soil. Some of it is belched out as methane. Some of it is farted out as methane and carbon dioxide. Then that meat is eaten, and that meat goes into some of my body tissue and stays there for a long time. And some of the tissue from the beef is used for leather. And that's pulling carbon out of the system for a long period of time. Mm. So if you've got grass-fed cattle, they're actually sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, carbon dioxide, into meat, uh, into dung, into leather. It's actually a process that's good for the environment. And it is an attack by city-based people who have no idea where their food, fibre, and energy come from, they are attacking the productive end of society. And what we have is non-producers in the bureaucracy imposing regulations on people who produce. And that is the problem we've got. This is massive disconnect between um, the primary producers and the people sitting in cities. Ian, you've spent your much of your life in academia. And you've managed to hold on to those positions. And I'm listening to you the way you talk very straight. And I wonder how you've managed to survive there. But just out of out of interest, how well does this book of yours do? How to get expelled from school? A guide to climate change for pupils, parents and punters. Well, the first climate book I put out was called Heaven and Earth. And that was almost an encyclopedia. Yeah. And that book sold internationally 140,000, 150,000 copies. And that's a big seller. And after that, I had many people saying, oh, there's too much science and I can't understand it. So I thought, well, I'll write a book for school kids. And I called it How to Get Expelled from School. And I had 101 questions that kids would ask their teacher, special questions for Friday afternoon, say get kicked out and get home early. (laughs) And I had the Government of Australia set up a website uh, with taxpayers' money attacking me and trying to answer these 101 questions. But I posed the question such that it was almost impossible to answer those questions um, unless, of course, you spoke the truth and used facts. 
And then I put out another book after that. The Pope put out an encyclical. My publisher's a good God-fearing Catholic. He said, could you write a few thousand words as a, as a criticism of the papal encyclical? Well, that ended up as a book, uh, Heaven and Hell, and that went to a few countries around the world. Then I had another book about the great electricity ripoff and showing how a ruinable power, uh, wind and solar, and uh, actually runs up your electricity costs, how the only thing renewable about wind and solar is the subsidies. They get renewed every year. <laughs> and I just looked at the costs that you are paying for your electricity for these stupid policies. And then I had um, a book called uh, Not for Greens, and this is where I looked at how much energy is used to make a teaspoon, how much you have to do to mine the iron and the coal to make the steel. Then you have to mine the chromium, beneficiate it, alloy it with the steel. Then you've got to mine and beneficiate nickel ores, alloy that with the steel and maybe throw in a bit of molybdenum and tin. And I went through the whole process of the energy budget to make a teaspoon to feed yourself. And I was only talking to a chap yesterday and he was he was telling me, look, my son was a good lefty. He read that book and it completely changed his view. And the latest book, Green Murder, is that I'm arguing that green policies are killing people. They're killing people in terms of diet, in terms of energy, uh, and in terms of their economic survival. I have coming out in the middle of August, a book for children, and this book's called The Little Green Book, and I have the right. first section for seven-year-old kids, and seven-year-olds love to know about poo and farts and vomit and things like this, and I'm tying all this into the carbon cycle. And the second part is for 12-year-olds where you can use more sophisticated arguments about mm -hmm. how the planet works, and the last part uh, I'm trying to uh, create turbulence with 16-year-olds. Uh, just deal with the dogma and then show the data. You work out whether you want to be saving the planet or whether you're actually enriching someone. And that book, uh, Little Green Book, I'm uh, hoping to get the ghost of Marcy Tong endorse it, uh, similar to his little red book. That's uh, coming out in mid-August. It's actually a book not for kids to read because kids don't read. Um, it's up to the parents and the grandparents mm. to read these sort of books to them. And I've written the early part of it in the style of horrible histories, which if yeah. some of you are out there and have got, well, your eight-year-old probably knows horrible histories. I mean, they, yes. These are gruesome stories about um, amputations and the Stuarts and things the like this. The murderous Romes and whatnot. Uh, yep. Oh, yeah. And, and, and kids love those sort of things. So I've tried to get into the head of my grandkids and um, how my kids were and write it such that we can start from the bootstraps up. So that's the answer to a question that I've totally forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> now we were talking about how well that book had done, oh, but I see this the little green book is now you're talking about that coming in. I'm yes. hoping, Ian, you're going to send a copy of that to the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. <laughs> they are now talking about needing strong leadership for mental health of the youth who are feeling crippled by eco-anxiety. Yeah. And I, I have noticed, I have never been on Twitter, but, you know, there's other social media channels. And a few years ago, say when they were starting about 15 years ago, these were usually for influencers who would be, you know, I don't know, selling makeup, 
hairstyles and whatnot. And now we have young people pushing austerity, yes. talking about how less they have flown, talking yes. about, you know, the carbon footprints and my bike and my EV and whatnot. With your background in geology, you and you have traveled so much. Where is the raw materials for most of our EVs mined today? Which which countries and what are the labor practices like there? Well, if you're driving an electric vehicle, you're mm. using graphite. Um, some of that might come from China or Sri Lanka or Madagascar mm-hmm. um, or various parts of Transvaal in South Africa, uh, maybe a little bit from Australia. Mm-hmm. You're also using copper. Uh, most of the world's copper comes from Chile. Um, there's a lot that comes out of um, North America, Poland, uh, China, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, um, a little bit now out of Europe. So you use a lot of graphite, you use a lot of copper, you also use nickel. And most of the world's nickel, about 65% of the world's nickel, comes from tropical areas where it is concentrated by the weathering of nickel-bearing rocks and you concentrate a layer of nickel-rich material at the bottom of the soil profile. So you clean off this whole soil profile, collect the nickel minerals. Now, if you're in a, a country with um, that's a charming country in terms of legislation like Cuba, then you walk away and leave the mess. And New Caledonia's got a similar mess. Other countries, you have to rehabilitate it. I'm not so sure about what happens in Indonesia. So um, you actually have to clear rainforests to create nickel. The cobalt for your electric vehicle, 90% of it comes from black children who are slaves underground in mines in the Congo. These kids die of cobalt poisoning. These kids get killed underground. These kids get whipped and beaten to produce cobalt, which goes straight to the Chinese buyers, which then goes into making the main parts. And as we now know, the biggest car manufacturer in the world is China. The biggest electric vehicle manufacturer in the world is China. And we tried electric vehicles in the 1830s and they failed. We tried them in the early 1900s and they failed. But I can tell you now, 97% of all electric vehicles that have been made recently are still on the road. The other 3% got home. (laughs) well it's interesting there i mean the evolution of uh ideas is always around us hopefully and thankfully uh and i note the other day that uh i think it's tesla has developed a uh early stages of a silicon based battery uh so it's going to have a whole lot more capacity with hopefully a whole lot less of these rare uh commodities like cobalt and copper hopefully don't don't know that for sure but isn't it interesting? You're talking about so much positive stuff, really, when you analyse it, and yet we've got these people that want to put all this uh, negative stuff in front of us, and it's sort of an arrogance over the last 30, or my adult life, where we're trying to turn back the clock. And I've, I want your opinion on the, on the term consensus science. The consensus in science is, uh, I read it, that it's, it's sort of a fabrication. It's a, it's a, almost a uh, a way of deflecting the argument. Um, science doesn't work by consensus, does it? Well, 97% of scientists agree with who, whomsoever funds them. That's the consensus. And if you're funded by a government that has a political position, 
that as a scientist to continue to get funding, you agree with the government. And these are the scientists who are eminently unemployable outside institutions. Science is based on evidence. In science, we are married to evidence, which you get from experiment, from measurement and observation. Um, and um, that experiment or measurement and observation um, has to be repeated time and time and time again until you're comfortable that you've got no mistakes in measurement or no mistakes in observation. And then you try to explain that, and that's called your scientific theory. And I know from my life in science at conferences you get cliques and clans of people who support one idea and those who support another idea, and they're at war all the time. There has never been consensus in science, and science doesn't work on consensus. Science works on criticism. That uh, science, um, a good scientist has to be sceptical, sceptical of everything. If someone says that the planet is warming, a good scientist will say, oh, that's interesting, show me. So that's tying it to evidence. Science is married to evidence. It's not married to the political policy of the day. It's not married to ideology. And we've got one very good ident uh, uh, past um, experience with this with Lysenko. Now, Lysenko was a Russian peasant in Stalinist times, and he did think that genetics could create better yields because, of course, this is creating one variety better than another. That's against communist principles. That's exactly what you have in capitalism with excellence being revered. He thought that you could actually have all the plants the same. You could train them up um, to produce better in colder conditions or wetter conditions. And that led to massive famines, especially in the Ukraine, and the Russian was quite happy to have these famines in the Ukraine. And there are about 35 million people that died from starvation, from the scientific policy that was demonstrably wrong. If you were a geneticist in the Soviet Union, Stalin had you sent to the gulags. Many of these people got assassinated. And it wasn't until 1956, which was three years after Stalin died, that Lysenko got sacked. So you can still see evidence of that today. I remember in the late 70s, I travelled from Soviet Karelia um, out of um, Leningrad across into Finland, into Lapinrata into Finland. Same soil, same language, same climate. The wheat on the Soviet side was about 15 centimetres high and on the Finnish side was about a metre high. And that was genetics. And even after Lysenko died, the whole agricultural practices in the Soviet Union had been put backwards and people had died. Now, this is what we're seeing now, an attack on agriculture where we must reduce nitrogen emissions, methane emissions and carbon dioxide emissions. What will happen is food prices go up, farmers will go broke, farmers will commit suicide, um, and people may well starve in some parts of the world. So we've seen it before. I don't know why we don't learn from this history. Well, and certainly I'd read that passage in your book, uh, Heaven and Earth, uh, about Lysenko, and we had a clip of uh, his 
his output a few uh, weeks ago on the show. So it was it was new to me then, and uh, rereading it from you and confirming that was was something useful to me as a farmer. I was not aware of it before, but we've had these sort of tyrants all through history. When you analyse it, I dare say, uh, how are we going to uh, take the narrative back and have a positive future for? our children. Uh, we, we don't need any more of the Greta file type uh, eco-anxiety. How are we going to take this narrative back? Because that's that's the, that's the problem we're all facing. Aside from big taxes, how are we going to beat it? Over the last couple of thousand years, we've been led by emperors and kings and tyrants and despots. And it's only been a very short period of time where we've had democratically elected governments. And everyone has these thoughts every now and then. If I was king of the world, this is what I'd do. And that always has a twinge of authoritarianism about it, a twinge of tyrannical uh, behaviour about it. So it's a very human thing to be a tyrant. It's a very human thing uh, to absolutely and totally dominate. So how are we going to take it back? Well, we have a democratic process and what... I have seen with some statistics over the weekend is that those on the right, those people who are very busy producing, those people who might be out on the farm all day, those people who might be working in a factory are not very politically active. It's those who are sitting around twiddling their thumbs, getting paid by the state, they're the ones who are politically active. And so I think the best way to address this is to become extremely politically active, to be heard, be seen. You might write letters to the newspaper. Well, one in a hundred will get published, but that's fine. Keep it up. Don't get disappointed. Um, talk to people. And when I'm at a supermarket, I might say to the checkout lady, I might comment on the weather and I'll wind that into global warming. I will all the time engage people in conversation. Um, today, I, I travelled by plane from Canberra to Adelaide. That's about an hour and 45 minutes. A bloke next to me, I was talking to about the carbon dioxide emissions coming out of that engine and um, what good it's doing for the planet. He'd not heard that view before. And I think you've just got to be an activist, but an activist for positive things. Oh, we're not ruining the world. I mean, the, the activists on the other side are telling us the world is being ruined. And I think a good news story can be easily sold. So you have you have to join political parties. You have to get heard. You have to do exactly what you're doing with this broadcast. Yeah, and and so on that, uh, you you talk about the book that you're doing for juniors, uh, the two books. That the concern I have in the New Zealand curriculum, the books I've seen or the, the the data I've seen is so biased. It's going to be very hard to get a books that you'd put up. Uh, into the schools and into the minds of of New Zealanders, because we have administrators that just just try to uh, deflect uh, what's honest and uh, and and not it might just challenge the narrative that's constantly been coming at them for thirty years or twenty or thirty years. So I think we're going to have to watch that, Jasper. Uh, how Ian's mm. books are. are um, well, let, let me give you a few fundamentals here. I'm regarded as controversial because I speak the truth and I use facts. That in today's world is controversial. If you get a kid at a school, want to write an essay, be it about republicanism or be it about um, the royal family, be it about religion, the flag or climate, if they don't write the party line, 
they get marked down. And the kids are realising that I've got to write this story. Now, we are teaching a generation of people that the only way to be successful is to tell lies. And that's why this book is written for parents and grandparents. I know kids won't read it. Kids don't read much at all. Uh, but we are now in a, a moral crisis, and this is why I attack the morals of the other side a lot in Green Murder. We are in a moral crisis. We are teaching children to be liars. And the only way to survive in this, this world is to teach, is to lie. When I was a kid, if you did something wrong, if you told a lie about it, you got belted even more. You got belted for doing something wrong. But if you told a lie about it, that was it. You really got belted. Now, we're teaching the exact opposite. And I think that's absolutely tragic. Some kids wake up to it. I think there are more kids wake up, wake up to it than we'd like to admit. And it's, it's very encouraging. And I often talk to young kids. I had a 13-year-old the other day, and I want to use him in a sequence of television programs. Just terrific. He's got a really inquiring mind. And they just don't accept all the stuff given by their teachers, but they know that they have to present the party line. And that's terrible. Yeah, well, it was interesting how Greta Thunberg got all the airtime and a young lady called Naomi Seibt uh, from uh, somewhere like Germany, Germany. Uh, was, yeah. was pretty much silenced after a bit. She just uh, got harangued and harassed, and uh, I haven't seen her name up, rising up for a long time from for her positing of a different view. So, yeah, it's interesting how uh, the brainwashing uh, has got through uh, using Well, Greta. Greta Thunberg was trying to claim that her childhood was destroyed. She'd made millions for her parents, who were activists. Uh, she didn't go to school. She claimed her childhood was destroyed. And I've got some pictures in this uh, next book showing young kids, younger than her, working in mines, working in sweatshops, making clothing, uh, working in rice paddies. She's claiming as a very rich Western child that her childhood was destroyed. Get real. Go and look, go and look at kids in India or, or Chad or Mauritania, some of these parts of the world. So this is something that has to be pushed home. Kids are idealistic and it has to be put in a perspective that they are very, very well off. That doesn't mean you sit back and do nothing. You have to be eternally vigilant and be concerned about the real issues. And the real issues are probably not climate at all. Um, in your country and in my country, it's about the feral animals. They just create havoc. And uh, at a school talk recently, one kid asked, uh, you know, what can I do? I said, well, get yourself a gun licence and go and shoot feral donkeys, feral camels, feral horses, foxes, um, Rabbits, take a lot of them, take the pigs, um, clean it all up. And that is a great thing you can do for the environment. It was at a very conservative Catholic college, and I think the teachers were quite shocked. Well, we, we certainly have a lot of possums in our bush decimating it. And you know, well, we gave them to you. Go and yeah. see them. You did, you did. But I think they've they've enjoyed our company better than yours because I don't think they quite cause the same damage in your neck of the woods as they do here. Yeah. But hey, can can we go back to um, this electricity stuff uh, with regard to solar panels and uh, wind farms and the like? You you've got political push to have. Well, aside from closing down Liddell, you've got a political push to have Snowy two pumped hydro. 
is that going to hit, hit the ground? Because we have a similar push in New Zealand to do what's called Onslow. And, you know, I don't see how, uh, from my point of view, it stacks up ever. No, it doesn't. Uh, it's a net energy loss process. In New Zealand, you've got higher rainfall than where our snowy system is. It's a net loss situation. We have perfectly good coal. Uh, we've got we've had a, a reactor in Australia for 70 years. Uh, this reactor has been producing medical isotopes. We have already a nuclear industry in this country. We are going to have nuclear submarines. And here we are. We're going to have nuclear submarines parked in Sydney Harbour yet we're not going to have the city of Sydney provided with electricity from nuclear. I mean, that's just dumb. So all of these ideas are generated by political ideologues, but none of these ideas are underpinned by engineering, not underpinned by people who built grids or built power stations. And by cutting out tried and proven 24-7, 365 day a year conventional power, that's okay. If you're going to replace it, let's replace it with something that's better, cheaper and more reliable, and that mm. is not done. What's happened in my country is we've had coal-fired power stations that have been flattened. There's been nothing put in their place. They've been totally flattened, especially here where I live in South Australia. We've had two of them flattened, and we're trying to live off sea breezes and sunbeams with a battery that will give you about five minutes of power for all of South Australia. And that's just nuts. We are a very low rainfall part of the world. We can't have hydro. Um, we've got a shortage of water. Uh, so um, we should be thinking of nuclear. And in South Australia, we produce thousands of tonnes a year of yellow cake from the Olympic Dam mine. We export all of that. There are now Canadian reactors that can run on yellow cake. And any of the spent fuel we can put underground in some very old deep mines here right out in the middle of the bush. There's no one that lives around them. And so I just shake my head and think, how can people be so stupid? And I think it's the the hunt for those few votes around the middle ground where people might vote on environmental matters. People who are wealthy on the right might vote for environmental matters and they're chasing that vote. Um, we have, although we've got a compulsory voting system, we have about 5% of people who don't vote. You can change your government if you can harness those 5%. You don't mm -hmm. even need to have policy. You've just got to get them to come along and vote. So these are complex problems, uh, but energy is fundamental. As society becomes more industrialised and more civilised, we use more energy. We once did our farming using human muscle and the muscle of beasts of burden. And then we had machines do it. Um, we once had factories would crush things or break things. Um, and before that, we had people do it by hand. So each process involves more and more energy. We have a lot of energy. Um, we have a huge amount of energy. New Zealand does have energy with coal, uh, with, with uh, the geothermal in the North Island. Um, but again, New Zealand would be a perfect place for nuclear. And we don't even have the debate anymore. That's the problem. It's shut down. I mean, we have we had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Brian Leyland. He's a big promoter of it, uh, been well known to yes, be promoting know, it for years. Yep. And uh, yeah, his voice is uh, among the wilderness. It's just uh, not, the debate is not had. So I, I don't know where we go with uh, 
go next? I mean, I, you know, you give us hope. Uh, we just want, uh, as part of the, the RCR, the Reality Check Radio um, mantra that I use, it's simplicity and truth. And I think that's what we've got to get to so that society understands the truth in simple bites. I've looked at this climate science stuff for 30 years. It's very difficult for anyone to retain their interest for more than a, more than a page of reading, unless you're vitally interested in it. And, you know, I'm involved in some other, other organizations and we, we start debating the minutiae when in fact we don't need to. We, we know the truth. We just can't seem to get it out there loudly enough. And it's people like you, Ian, that, uh, that are helping us. Uh, well, let, let me so. give you three simple truths. The first is that no one has ever shown that human emissions of carbon dioxide drive global warming. Um, give me half a dozen scientific papers that show it. I've been asking that for decades. The second thing is that we know from ice core measurements and we know from solubility studies in chemistry and Henry's law, et cetera, that as temperature starts to increase, then you release carbon dioxide out of water and later the carbon dioxide content increases. So it's not that carbon dioxide drives a temperature increase. It's the exact opposite. As a temperature increase drives an increase in carbon dioxide. And the third point is my world of geology looks at the past. And in the past, we've had massive climate changes. Even when humans in, in the younger dryers were on planet Earth 11,000 years ago, we had a 15 degrees Celsius change in 10 years. Uh, that's global warming. And that was a natural process. So we've had massive climate changes in the past. Every time it's been warm, we've had a thriving of the human population. We've had economies boom. Uh, in, the, in the medieval warming, for example, we built the great cathedrals and monasteries and churches and universities. Uh, we had two crop harvests a year in, in Europe. In the cold times, people die like flies. The average longevity goes down in cold times. So in human times, we see that we humans, a product from the, from the Rift Valley of Africa, we love it warm. People go to warm climates for their holidays. And in the past, we see that all life thrives when it's warmer. And for most of time, the planet has been warmer and wetter than now. For less than 20% of time, we've had ice on Earth, and we're in one of those times now. The six out of the six great ice ages started when there was more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than now. So carbon dioxide couldn't be driving warming. How, how could you have an ice age if you had higher carbon dioxide? So I think those three points, uh, looking at no one's ever shown the, the story, uh, temperature rises, then carbon dioxide rises, and then looking at the past, just wipe this out straight away. The problem is that when you give these facts to the ideologues, they say, well, they're your facts. Um, they, they cannot analyse critically any facts. Their ideology dominates because this is the new religion. This is the new religion that's replaced Christianity and it's blind, it's unreasoning, um, no data will change anything and you can't use scientific facts to change someone who's, who's found faith. So that is the battle we've got against a new religion. They've often used this term, you know, mass hypnosis, and about quite a lot that's happened in the in the past two, three years. 
And we see this gravy train. I, I call it a gravy train because very honestly, I don't think I see youngsters, of course, converted your Australian New Zealand psychiatrist society says that three out of four youngsters are worried. But for the older generation, I do believe it's got a lot to do with money. And, you know, uh, there's this saying by, and I forget the writer's name now, who said that you cannot convince a man of something when his paycheck depends on his not knowing it. I, it's Upton Sinclair, I remember now. And that is, would you have a ballpark idea of what sort of funds are being splashed about in Australia on climate science funding, research funding? In the current budget, mm. it was $35 billion. Oh. Um, when you add the states to it, we are dealing with hundreds of billions. If you're looking at it worldwide, it's trillions. Uh, it is a wonderful business because you can make a fortune out of frightening people witless. You can make a fortune out of renewable power, building solar and wind and getting massive subsidies. In the UK, the Solar and wind generators get paid when they don't produce. They also get paid when they do produce. Uh, it is a new business, and there is a huge amount of employment and a huge amount of money related to this. On the plane up from Adelaide to Canberra, I was sitting in front of a chap who was talking to his neighbour, and he was saying he's involved in building a new wind turbine uh, area at Crookwall, north of Canberra, and he was just saying what a load of bullshit it was. Uh, he was looking at the volume of concrete, how 105 trucks needed to come in to pull the footings for a wind turbine. Just work out the amount of carbon dioxide that's released in making that cement. He was talking about how the whole business is, is a complete fantasy. So we have created new business opportunities these businesses have not competed on a level playing field. These businesses have um, subsidies to keep them alive. Mm. And there's a whole lot of people sucking off this. And I often ask when people ask me these sort of questions, I say, well, follow the money. This has got nothing to do with science. It's got nothing to do with the environment. It's all about a new way of creating money, money. and taking money through people's electricity bills. So uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of our former Prime Minister's uh, election night speech when she took the podium. She talked about building back better, uh, a just transition, a reset, uh, and that language is quite common, uh, as I've discovered, uh, with other political leaders around the world and, in fact, some organisations. Are your political masters using that same language? Exactly the same language. And the journalists should ask simple questions like, how? Show me how we're going to have this transition. Show me how we're going to completely reverse the grids, such that the wind and solar out in isolated rural areas um, can uh, um, have the uh, electricity come back into the areas where it's used. And I view this rather like your circulation system in your body. Uh, you have large veins coming out of the heart, and by the time the capillaries are at your toes, they're very, very small. Now, the electricity is the same. You have very high voltage coming out of the generators, and by the time you get to someone at the end of the line, then you've, you've got 415 volt power, which goes down to 240 volt, which goes into, into the residence or the factory or whatever. Now, what's happening is that these wind and solar facilities are be being built at the end of the line. 
and, and you can't push blood through the capillaries to get up into the aorta. It doesn't work that way. You can't do it. So you have to totally rebuild the power stations. You've got to totally rebuild the grids. And no journalist, and I blame the journalists a lot for this, the mainstream media are, are, are pretty evil, I think, but no one's asking the simple questions. Well, yeah, that's very nice with the transition. Show me. How are you going to do it? Or if they say, oh, by 2050 we're going to be net zero. Okay, fine. You know, you're in power now. What changes are going to happen between now and 2024? What are you going to do between 2024 and 2025? And between 2025 and 2026? And that is a mechanism for holding their feet to the fire. No one does that. People say, oh, yeah, okay. I mean, in this country, we're having to build 22,000 solar panels a day to get anywhere near net zero. Now, we're not doing that. And we've got to do it between now and 2030. It will never be achieved. And those who are giving us this message won't be in power then. So it's it's really the mainstream media to raise these really simple questions. Well, a simplest question of all I saw recently in the United States Parliament where Senator Kennedy uh, just asked that something similar to this, uh, we're going to spend about uh, so many trillion by 2050. But what is the temperature change going to be? And, of course, <laughs> he couldn't get an answer from it. It was fabulous, wasn't it? Ducky it was waving and bobbing, but no answer. Now, there's trillions involved in this. Not only did, do you need an answer, you need something that's very carefully argued and then something that can survive a simple due diligence. That doesn't happen. Mm. No, mm. It, it doesn't happen. And, you know, ultimately the rubber will hit the road. We saw the riots out of Sri Lanka last year when people were being starved. That reminds me of what you've written in Green Murder. I also refer to a recent report that UNICEF commissioned the journal Lancet wrote it for UNICEF, and it's called A Future for the World's Children. And they're talking about, they ultimately, they rank the countries on the basis of sustainability index and flourishing index. And guess who tops the sustainability index? In, in order, number one is Burundi, Chad, Somalia. Congo, Malawi, and these countries, so it's inversely proportional on flourishing index, Burundi is 156, Congo is 179, Chad is 178. Why don't we go and ask the children in those countries, you know, so so just too bad, you're bad on the flourishing index, but hey, you're doing really well on the sustainability stakes. This is ultimately, it's it is going to happen regardless of what we think or whatever the left preaches, isn't it? There's no escaping. I, I, look, um, uh, Jasper, you, you've hit a very important point here. Young children in the Western world are idealistic, and you can then use those sort of simple arguments to show that what you are promoting is going to kill people of your age in other countries. And if you want to save the planet, these are the things you've got to address. Children like you. Children who in parts of the Indian subcontinent and, and in Africa will live in a hut. And I've seen these huts in many parts of the world made out of mud and donkey dung. And in that hut, there was a woman slaving in there, trying to keep it warm and trying to cook food. The hut is full of smoke. And she dies of respiratory diseases, as do her children. And simple, reticulated, coal-fired electricity would change that because that means that children would have light and they could do their homework. 
children would have energy for cooking food and for heating and for cooling. And that is the greatest thing you can do to these countries. You can actually give them coal-fired power. And by refusing to do this, which the UN is doing, they know they're killing people. And their own numbers show that. And I, th I think you can exploit that sort of guilt with young children. These children are suffering eco-anxiety, and that's because teachers have beaten the bushes too hard. The media's beaten the bushes. It's a wonderful world in front of us. It always has been for every child. Uh, and a lot of children want to go out and help and do other things. You can, you can, you can show them that the planet can be made better for people of your age. Yeah, and isn't that a great story to tell? Surely that's nicer to tell to school children and, and anyone that wants to listen than all the negativity that comes down the, the pipeline at us. I mean, I yeah, yeah. the great, yeah, sorry. I, didn't yeah, mean yeah, I just said yes, yes. So where are we going to go to next? Uh, what, you know, we've got these parliaments. Uh, you've got one, we've got one. They're hell-bent on net zero. Uh, we've tried to talk about it uh, a little bit in this discussion. The circuit break is going to have to be what? Are we going to have to be uh, into a recessionary mode or what? Yep. I mean, New Zealand, I think, yep. is here. I, I, think, I think that's the only thing that will change it is a recession or a war. If you go onto the Plata River, you see these wonderful mansions built by the richest country of the world in the 1920s, and that was Argentina. And they're all empty. There's this flapping galvanised iron and crumbling buildings. That was a country that was incredibly rich and it destroyed itself with stupidity. And my hope is to have a recession, not a depression. And in that, um, those tighter times with high interest rates, with high inflation, with a lack of resources, people paying massive bills for the electricity, then they might suddenly say, hmm, let's have another look at this. But governments are going to do some pretty evil things before that. The first thing is they'll kill off the big users of electricity, like smelters, aluminium smelters. They'll be the first to go to stop cities um, having blackouts. And having a blackout in a city is electorally not very sensible. So it's going to be drawn out longer than it should be. But I think that's the only solution, to have hard times. I know. Much as none of us would like this. I don't want at it that at might, all. Not, neither do I. And But that, you know, ultimately when the pain gets personal, that's only when quite a few people wake up all together in a hurry. And here's hoping we, we stop before that. I think we've got just over an hour now, Ian. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure we are going to get quite some feedback on uh, this interview. For listeners, our text number is 2057. We were listening to Australian geologist Ian Plymer, who has been very generous with his time today. And we have not gone too academic. This has been a very revealing discussion. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you Ian. for having me. I'm happy to appear again. And if some of the feedback wants questions, happy to appear again. Well, Absolutely. You took the words out of my mouth. It's great, Ian. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, look, come and get some Pinots from Central Otago. Happy to happy to show you around. <laughs> I would <laughs> love to. I would love to. I'm about to go downstairs and maybe look for one now. You're, you're two and a half hours in front of me. You're probably ready for one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. We'll be Thank in you. touch.
Thank okay. you. Bye. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.